Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Tony Fletcher to discuss his co-authored autobiography of soul legend Eddie Floyd. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Tony Fletcher, the co-author with Eddie Floyd of Knock, Knock, Knock on Wood, My Life and Soul. Tony, welcome to the show. Hi, Nate. It's a pleasure to be on the show. You've got a great show. Thanks, and I've been meaning to have you on forever because I love so many of your books. Well, tell us about this one. And first, introduce Eddie Floyd, because I know us Stax heads know exactly who Eddie Floyd is, and anybody who's familiar with 60s pop and soul has heard his songs, but he's not Otis Redding or Booker T and MG. So give us a quick summary and then tell us how you came to write the book. Sure. Eddie Floyd is certainly a soul legend for people who know their soul music. But as much as anything, he's somebody he's, he's alive and well and still with us in his mid 80s. He's somebody who has been there at every single twist and turn. And so whether we're talking about you know, growing up down south, but moving up to Detroit, being right there pre the beginning of Motown, right there at the birth of uh, rhythm and blues vocal groups, all the way through being with Stax for a solid decade, the glory days of Stax Records, and then continuing a career that's seen him play with the Blues Brothers Band, with Bill Wyman's All Stars, and having a number one hit cover version of his uh, most well-known song, Knock on Wood, and uh, just generally being known as A, uh, a good guy, and B, an ambassador for soul. And um, it, it was really because of that long, uh, we're talking the 60-plus year history of making music, that I felt it would be good for him to tell his life story. But to back up, I mean, I've, I've written a fair number of books and some of them are about um, rock bands and I got a bit of a name for that. But I grew up at a time, well, a time and a place. I'm British and we always appreciated our soul music as well. There's never really been a separation. And as a teenager, when I'm, there was a, a mod revival, we were all dancing as teens to modern soul music. And along the ways, after living in the States for a long time, I wanted to write a book about Wilson Pickett. I realized there was a gap on, on, on my bookshelf and therefore everybody's bookshelf uh, for a biography on Wilson Pickett, um, who had quite a lot in common with Keith Moon, which was the, the uh, most well-known subject and also the sort of most successful book I've had. They were both very mercurial, brilliantly innately talented figures. And um, I said about researching the book on Wilson Pickett, it was my first time really diving wholeheartedly into black music, soul music, the South. And I found everybody extremely welcoming, very easy to deal with, very friendly, very keen for Wilson's story to be told, warts and all. Uh, that was Wonderful coming on the back of my previous book had been a biography of the Smiths, where lots of egos had been wounded and damaged and people were very, very, very fragile. I mean, a lot of people that I thought would talk for that book, um, they did, but they, they needed to know everything was OK. They needed to know who else was part of it. And I really enjoyed the process of um, of going through this biography on Wilson Pickett. And I came out of it. So to, two quick things. I came out of it thinking, you know, you, you know, Pickett's been dead a while. A lot of these soul artists have passed on. And, and uh, wouldn't it be great for one of them to tell their own stories? I'm not talking about the Motown superstars who do get to tell their own stories. I'm talking about the more Southern musicians who don't. And 
it's hard to justify too many biographies on these people after the event. Um, we're just talking the, the, the realities of sales potential. But I thought that if one of them um, would want to tell their own story, we really should, because I was just aware that, you, you know, almost nobody had done so, like literally almost nobody. And I had met Eddie as the very last of my interviews for the Wilson Pickett book. And I'm sure we're going to get right into how the two of them knew each other. And Eddie had just uh, been the consummate soul man. He met me in Montgomery. He was dressed as if he was going on stage for a lunch meeting. He wanted to treat me to lunch at the posh hotel there. When I told him I was vegan, we went to an Italian restaurant. He paid for it with a, a good old fashioned bankroll. Um, his license plate of his vehicle, I'm pretty sure is Stacks One or something similar. Stacks Soul. He's got the awesome. license plate. And he was just this gentleman. And I thought, well, you know, he was easy to approach. He handles his own business. He handles his his own calls. Why don't I, a couple of years after the picket book came out, I just thought, why don't I approach Eddie and knowing that he's lived this long, long life of soul, see if he'd be interested. And he jumped at the opportunity. And I'm so happy he did because this is a great book. Like you say, it, it does a whole span of the, um, basically his generation of African-American musical experience all the way from Montgomery, Alabama in the 30s, you know, through Detroit in that same time period, finally moves to Detroit full time in the 50s, is involved in in a group, the Falcons with Wilson Pickett that becomes one of the, you know, they're right up there with Nolan Strong and the Diablos and, and what Little Willie John was doing and what Marvin Johnson was doing and what Barry Gordy was doing with Marvin Johnson and, and Jackie Wilson, just absolutely key. And of course, the Stacks period. And then so much that I didn't know about his post-Stacks period and also the inner workings of Stacks. So yeah, I'm, this was just a, a treat. And the other thing about Eddie Floyd is so many of these stories are heartbreakers. You know, the, your Marvin Gaye's and your Wilson Pickett's that are just, just kill you. And Eddie is a badass and a good guy at the same time. And he made it through and it's wonderful. So I um, think that's a great summary, Nate. Um, he, yeah, the good guy bit is easy to say, but actually I think you're right. He's, he's, he's both, you know, you wouldn't mess with Eddie, but you don't normally have to mess with Eddie because if you're, straight on the straight and narrow with him he'll be on the straight and narrow with you and 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 in in, in those senses and in those uh circumstances he's just he's just a wonderful gentleman yeah absolutely and you can tell when he talks about wilson pickett that he loved the guy but he had no he wasn't worried about wilson's bs and it wasn't like you know percy sledge and wilson getting a fist fight and percy sledge was a pro boxer but eddie was like Apparently on a whole nother level, there's a couple of references in the book where, like, I think it's Steve Cropper that said he had hands the size of ham hocks, you know, just a big, bad dude, not worried about Wilson's BS. So um, nice exactly. to see that sort of story. Yeah. But let's get back into his life. Like, he's born in Montgomery, Alabama, and so many of my hobby horses come up immediately. His neighborhood, of course, is another one of these thriving African-American culture centers that evolved post the Civil War up through the 20s and 30s, and of course was destroyed by uh, highway reconstruction in, in the 50s. And and this is a recurrent story that happens over and over again in city after city in the U.S., happened in the Bronx, happened in Detroit, happened in D.C., happened in Atlanta, just over in Memphis, L.A., everywhere. Um, but he also was somebody who you know, his hometown boys or Hank Williams or hometown heroes, Hank Williams and Nat King Cole. Tell us about how he perceived those two figures growing up in Montgomery. Well, one one thing that's uh, really important about Eddie is he won't be drawn into stories about racial conflict. And it might be because throughout his life, he's worked with black and white musicians alike. And in fact, the Falcons were in their initial itineration, uh, arguably one the or one of the very first um, interracial groups. So he presents uh, Montgomery that despite the fact that this is, um, you know, he's grown up long bef before the, the modern civil rights era, he's presenting his neighborhood in Montgomery as a regular thriving neighborhood. It's not like, hey, we were, we were um, poverty stricken. It's not like we were browbeaten. You know, we had our lives. Obviously, the white man and woman had their lives. Um, but, you know, our neighborhood was was solid. And we grew up knowing, you know, we had our community and we were OK with that. And um, certainly along the way, 
that community, like right his neighborhood was um, Holt Street was where the, I think it's the AME Zion Church, where they had 5,000 people meet the uh, just after Rosa Parks refused to sit down on the bus and Dr. King spoke there. In fact, he was sort of elected to be leader of neighborhood council there. He'd He'd only arrived in Montgomery shortly before. So his neighborhood was the heart of the African-American part of of Montgomery. And you're quite right about the the destruction of the area. I mean, it doesn't look great now. And for all the, I'd written a book about New York City where Robert Moses just basically turning the South Bronx into a sort of isolated island of poverty. Um, created so much, so much like uh, social damage. And yet, it wasn't just Robert Moses, because clearly he wasn't in charge of, you mentioned D.C., of absolutely Detroit. They tore the heart out of the Black Bottom neighborhood, which was part of Eddie Floyd's story. And although it doesn't feel so pronounced in Montgomery, in the sense that Montgomery is a, actually a very small city, and a, uh, for all its incredible history, good and bad, in the um, history of sort of you know, United States and racial relations in the Civil War. It's actually a pretty quiet city. I mean, it's it's a bit of a, you know, it's not a noisy place. It's not Memphis, that's for sure. Um, so in a way, that doesn't get that that story doesn't get told so much. But I walked around with Eddie and he's kind of like, well, that was my house. But it's underneath the flyover right now. And, uh, you know, the church is still standing, but this church is boarded up and that's the old nightclub. And you know, believe me, just just go search for some pictures. There was a thriving neighborhood up and down this Holt Street. Um, yeah, unfortunately, not the case now, but uh, it was where Eddie grew up. It was where a lot of the um, artists we know of, particularly the Motown, uh, a lot of the Motown stars, a lot of the Temptations all came from Alabama. Um, I had realized with writing the Picket book that there were direct lines from certain southern states up to northern cities. So Mississippi went up to Chicago and Alabama went up to Detroit and sort of Florida and the Carolinas moved up to DC and possibly New York and further north than that. And then kind of Texas, Oklahoma, this is all part of the Great Migration, of course, would move out west to LA. So you had these very, very clear lines. So uh, Alabama, it it wasn't quite a straight line. I think uh, um, Eddie would go up there with his mother as a as a as a kid to Detroit because there were so many connections, and I think he said it was Cincinnati was the uh, where they would stay over um, to catch you know to between trains, um, but I think also Louisville was a big um, midway point there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is the Falcons with Wilson Pickett on lead vocals and Eddie Floyd right behind him. I found a love. And that was the Falcons featuring Wilson Pickett on lead vocals, Eddie Floyd in the back. I found a love and just absolutely key track. It was a major R&B hit. It's picking up the torch from the five Royales of that kind of Southern guitar, heavy, funky, raw, soul infused R&B. That's distinct from the pop doo-wop side of stuff that was coming out of New York around the same time. And that would be such a big influence in Detroit, which is where the Falcons were. But there's kind of a fork in the road here. And it's interesting that both Wilson uh, and Eddie went in the Stacks Atlantic direction rather than the Motown direction uh, as time went on. But I want to get to to those two figures that the, you answered the question brilliantly, but I, I want to get back to the Hank Williams and Nat King Cole thing, because Eddie was very gracious about Hank Williams and how he had seen him driving around town in his Cadillac and how he went to his funeral, which was an immense affair. But he was also a big fan of Nat King Cole, who was also from Montgomery, but was absent. 
did I miss it or were there stories of him seeing or hearing Nat King Cole in in the town or was Nat already a national figure long gone? No, Nat, so so Hank Williams uh, lived in Montgomery and of course Hank didn't make old bones. I think he only made it to age 30. So Eddie talks about seeing him drive around in his big car and Hank was a hero because it, it, it wasn't like, hey, as a black kid, I don't like white artists. It was like, we love this country music. We're proud of all the music that comes out of here. We're proud of Hank Williams. Hank Williams is a hometown hero. Um, Nat King Cole became uh, a national hero and a national kind of icon um, for African-Americans. He crossed uh, a lot of um, color lines. You know, he was the first to do a lot of different things. He suffered for it. I think it is known that he was once just punched out on on stage. and Nat King Cole always carried himself correctly and presented himself very, very well. Uh, but Nat King Cole, though his childhood home was in Montgomery and actually over the years got moved onto university property so it could be protected. He had actually, I think, moved out by the time Eddie really came up. Um, Eddie did have a story involving Nat King Cole's nephew, which you may or may not be planning on getting to. Yeah, but, we'll get uh, to that. Yeah. So there was um, so Nat King Cole's family was still very much present in town. Um, and it's partly because of that story involving Nat King Cole's kid that uh, uh, Eddie didn't see everything that went on in Montgomery during his teens. Uh, but, you know, those are the original those are original heroes down there. And I, I thought it was interesting that, that Eddie did, didn't say, hey, we didn't care about that, um, Hank Williams because, you know, he's country and that's white. I think there was a sense that that a lot of people were growing up. Um, and I can't speak for them and they're not with us anymore, but most of them. But I'm, not, I'm sure a lot of people didn't understand why they weren't meant to associate more with the other race. But they didn't have a problem. We know that kids don't have problems. So kids are sort of playing with other kids. I mean, that was the story with Pickett as well. He was often in his, um, the plantation owner's house, you know, playing with, playing with the white kids. The kids didn't have a problem. And Eddie growing up was like, Hey, Hank's our man. And one thing about Eddie that will become apparent the more we talk is although he's a soul icon for sure he has made so much different music and he loves so much different music and he doesn't see the barriers there yeah that was one thing that came through because he emphasized that he was not a church singer that he didn't start his singing in the church although we'll get to it in a minute he did sing in church choirs but uh that's after the plot twist you just sort of referenced but you know that that he saw lena horn in concert i presume in detroit early on he saw rockola machines which were these very unique um sort of music and still photo machines that would be in train stations and stuff. I've, I've come across this in some other episodes we've done and he would see people, uh, you know, like Count Basie or Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Jordan on these Rockola machines and see their pictures. And that is when he decided to be a singer, you know, Billy Eckstein and others. So, um, you know, he's got this, what you might consider a pop jazz influence with Nat King Cole and, and Lena Horne and others, and also this country music thing uh, coming through with Hank Williams. But then he gets into trouble, like you mentioned, with with a young Ethan Cole, who is a nephew of Nat King Cole. They get, um, he punched out the school principal. He'd been getting into some mischief with Ethan, and he got in a fight with the school principal. And he must have been a big, tough kid already if he's punching out a grown man uh, <laughs> yeah, at, at a young age. Um and then he gets, according to him, framed for burglarizing churches, which I believe Eddie. Eddie is one of these guys, you know, that has the ring of truth when he tells his story and when he messes up. And it's not often, but he will admit it. But, you know, so if he says he was framed for that, I believe him. But that lead him, leads him to reform school, which turns out to be a great experience and a turning point in his life. Yeah. And you don't find uh, too many people, um, particularly with the modern prison systems we have, you know, you don't hear too many people saying, oh, yeah, prison was really good for me. It's usually you hear the opposite. Um, yeah. Eddie, I think it's worth saying we've, we've mentioned that he saw Lena Horn. We've mentioned that he was going up to Detroit because of this um, great migration that was continuing with uh, southern uh, blacks moving up to Detroit, where the auto industry was thriving. There were jobs to be had. There was lots of racism in Detroit, but I think the income probably made it more 
uh, worthwhile than the sort of plantation culture that, that, that still existed down down south. And his uncle had moved up there. His uncle is an absolute key figure, not just in Eddie's life and the Falcons, but in uh, the, the, the music scene of Detroit. And his mother was getting nursing jobs in Detroit and Montgomery. So they were going back and forth. And Eddie had fallen in love with music. He'd seen these images on the Rockolas. His mother had started taking him to concerts. He was, he always told me the one he remembered most was, was Lena Horne. So he loved these big presentations, these beautiful classic singers, you know, these sort of like semi jazz singers, um, blues singers, jazz singers. He loved that. And his heart was set on being in Detroit. And I think Montgomery was too small for him. And he, he was, he was chomping at the bit. He got into trouble and I imagine that to some degree, the exact details, you know, this would be about 70 years ago for him, though, are going to be a bit blurred. But, yeah, he got sent to three years in a reform school called called Mount Megs. And it actually did. That was at the age of 13. So he missed his kind of key early teens. And um, but he does say it was the best thing for him, because among other things, that they only had two teachers. There it was an all Negro. It was like a, you know, a Negro reform school is what it was called. And there were only two teachers for 300 kids, but uh, um, both teachers sounded like they really cared for the kids. And one of them in particular, after Eddie ran away twice and you you were pretty easily caught. And we, I mean, he sort of like ran back home and both times his family was like, well, we've got no choice. We've got to take you back. Um, and they eventually said, look, what are we going to do to keep him out of trouble? Sorry about that. They said, what are we going to do to keep him out of trouble? And um, the keep him out of trouble became um, he's really, really, really into his music. He should he should sing. And one of these two teachers took him under his belt and really taught Eddie how to sing. So they put him in the choir there, not not the church choir that, for example, Wilson Pickett grew up in just 10 miles outside of Montgomery at the time in Prattville, like at the local African-American, you know, shack of a church. Uh, Eddie was learning to sing in this um, reform school choir, but he was being taught this is what a voice does. And these are the ranges. He, he also says that there was a piano there. It was the first time he ever saw a piano being played by a younger person. And he was exposed to so much music that he is very interesting. He's almost alone of the great soul singers who got his training um, not in the church, but in a more formal setting, albeit in a reform school. And clearly it set him up very, very, very well for, for the career to come. Yeah, it worked as kind of a surrogate for it. And I, and I uh, you know, I described my notes as a church choir within the reform school. So I think he got that gospel thing through this odd channel, not through the direct church. Um, but then he moves to Detroit. And bird groups had had this run from the from right after World War II on groups like the Ravens and the Orioles, also you know Louis Jordan, and then the the unreconstructed blues guys who got a hold of electric guitars like John Lee Hooker in Detroit and Muddy Waters obviously in Chicago and others. We had the Dominoes and the Drifters and the Midnighters and the Clovers and the Diablos, and he's fascinated also with Johnny Ace, the great lost Memphis figure, you know, Johnny Ace and BB yeah. King and, and Bobby Blue Bland are the Beale street boys coming out of Memphis. And Ace is the most smooth, most pop aligned of those. and was clearly headed for superstardom. If Ace hadn't killed himself on Christmas 54 or whatever, um, I, I guarantee you, he would have been right up there with Fats Domino or little Richard or Chuck Berry as one of that generation that crossed over the rock audience. But he instead was the martyr of that generation. Eddie picks him as his favorite. And then he forms the Falcons. And you already mentioned it was an integrated group. But tell us about his uncle, Robert, and how he helped the Falcons come along that first iteration of the Falcons and the great lead singer who preceded Wilson Pickett. That's the crazy thing about the Falcons. Wilson Pickett's not even their first badass lead singer. No, not at all. There are reasons why the Falcons, uh, there's a four CD box set that labels them uh, the world's first soul group. And at first you, you, you go, well, hang on. And then you look at it and you think, well, they were making records in 1956 before people were calling this soul music and look at the pedigree that they had. So yeah, his uncle, Robert West was, um, did not have kids and moved up with his wife to Detroit, started the real estate business, which was an important business because there was redlining, as as most of us should know, meaning there were lines where blacks were not basically not allowed to live, not given mortgages by banks. So you, we also referenced there was a thriving 
African-American culture in the Black Bottom neighborhood that's now kind of more like downtown Detroit. Uh, Hastings Street is just legendary. It's, it's, it's a, it should be as famous as 125th Street in Harlem. And Robert West was up there, massive music lover, massive music fan, sharp-dressed man, no kids, businessman. Um, his taste being a bit older is running to sort of, you know, more like the jazz side of things. But when Eddie, he agrees to take Eddie up to live with him in Detroit when Eddie gets out of reform school. And it takes Eddie all of about six months to a year to put a group together. And he's working in this um, department store in Detroit. that was 25 floors of retail and another six floors of storage. Uh, um the second biggest square footage, I think, in the world outside of Macy's, certainly in, in the United States at the time. And of course, in a place that big, it's going to be integrated. He gets chatting with um, another kid there, a white kid, and they both say, hey, I sing, you sing, I sing, let's let's form a band. i got a friend that sings. And so the initial Falcons that comes together is these two white kids and these two black kids. And um, that's the group that actually goes out. So, so Robert is just... Robert West is just, hey, you're mine, basically. <laughs> I'm going to manage you. Um, I'm going to manage you. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to try and make you superstars. Robert West is enough of an entrepreneur that he starts a label at the time. But he puts out a different band, and he sees in the Falcons some real potential. And he drives them out in their suits because he's made sure that they have stage suits. He drives them out to Chicago to audition for chess. Um I guess not having made a phone call to see if that was okay. Um, oh, no, sorry for Mercury. Why did I say chess? I'm sorry. I meant to say Mercury. Good catch, he, yeah. Yeah, thank you. He, um, he, uh, he drives them out. There are connections with chess down the line, but he drives them out to Mercury. And it may be because they were integrated and, you know, record companies like Novelty that somebody came out. I've wondered to this day whether it was Willie Dixon, but somebody came out and said, all right, you don't have an appointment, but hey, you guys look interesting. You're young. Come in and do an audition. And they sang and he signed them on the spot. Now, it should be said that Robert West, while not a musician himself, was smart enough that by this point he had already hired the Falcons, a vocal teacher. Um, he hired them a guy, Bob Hamilton, who had a checkered history himself. And um, I think he ended up writing just like Romeo and Juliet. I think that's the one he wrote. And Bob Hamilton really helped show them where voices could go, um, you know, things that they hadn't heard. So they really had a good range of voices. And Mercury signed them. Willie Dixon produced their original single. And the fact it didn't sell didn't really make too much of a difference because it put them on the map locally. And the Falcons were already singing in the supper clubs, meaning the sort of white clubs where blacks could only enter as uh, employees or performers, but not as, as patrons, not as customers. And um, people like the Four Tops were out there as the Four Aims at the time. And the Falcons got on the map that way. And there was a lot of bouncing around between the card, at least half dozen labels that Robert West set up and bouncing to some auditions elsewhere. And that does include chess uh, until they eventually got a hit in 59 with You're So Fine and went on tour with Marv Johnson at the same time that Marv Johnson had the first record out on Tamla, Barry Gordy's label, of course, there was also a hit at the time. And uh, Barry Gordy did a lot of studying at the feet of Robert West, who had his label growing much earlier. And uh, uh, Gordy was even at the session for You're So Fine. Ostensibly, he was looking to buy the mixing board that they were using. Uh, there was a DJ, Senator uh, Briscoe, was a you know, self-appointed senator, of course, who had this very influential radio show. So the, Robert West was wise enough to know that it didn't harm to record at a DJ studio. And uh, Barry Gordy did end up buying that mixing board and moving it over to West Grand Boulevard, where he very soon hung up a, hung up a shingle calling Tamla Motown, Hitsville, USA. Um, but it's worth wondering what Motown, what Tamla Motown, what Barry Gordy might have done or not done had he not been able to learn both from Robert West's successes and also it should absolutely be said from Robert West's failures because Robert West was one of these people you had no idea the Falcons certainly didn't what label any record was going to come out on at any given moment um quite why he had so many labels is a little beyond me but um but he did 
and the Falcons had that big hit in 59 with You're So Fine. They struggled for a follow-up, but they had as their singer and their lead singer on that hit uh, was one Joe Stubbs. And the last name may sound familiar. And of course, he was Levi Stubbs, brother Levi Stubbs, who we most of us will know from the four tops. And Joe Stubbs was really well known at the time. So what had happened is the two white guys from um, the Falcons had got their draft papers. And interestingly, not the black kids, uh, but the white kids had. And they were actually really excited. Um, so they went off to 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 join the army. Um, I guess Vietnam hadn't really kicked in, so they were all excited. And the others said, okay, we need replacements. They found this um, wonderful bass singer, Willie Schofield, uh, singing in another club. And then uh, I think Robert West was able to lure Joe Stubbs into the group. Joe already had a name. He was 15, 16, had a great name. And they got him in the band. And now they had a fantastic lead singer. And they and let me stop you right there because we got to do a sponsor break right quick before we introduce the fantastic lead singer. Sorry to interrupt. You've been rolling so good. I've just been letting you go. But um, yeah, and this fantastic lead singer, of course, is Wilson Pickett. But we got to mention Joe Stubbs, who was the lead singer on their first hit and was the younger brother. Levi Stubbs later to be massively famous with the four tops. Um, So. Yeah, already an awesome, awesome group and going places. And I think Steph's telling me we've we've talked over our second musical sample, so I won't have to decide if I was going to play "I'll Be Home" or um, "Baby That's It" but by the Falcons. But but if you're interested out there listening, track down those songs because you can hear the early early Eddie Floyd leading the Falcons, which you don't hear on so many of their tracks. But back to the story. So now Wilson Pickett comes into the picture. Yeah, and by the way, so does Mac Rice. So you've got at one point in this group, and uh, they were all in the group at more or less the same time. You've got Joe Stubbs, who should have been bigger than he was. I think some ego may have got in the way. And actually, Joe Stubbs quit on the eve of a very big tour for the Falcons. I I gather he kind of wanted the, the band to become Joe Stubbs and the Falcons, like Hank Ballard and the Midnighters or... Um, Nola Strong and the Diablos and the others were like no look I'm sorry we've got Eddie Floyd we've got Mac Rice we've got Willie Schofield we all write songs this isn't going to happen and they gave them three weeks to find a replacement and Willie Schofield was already thinking about maybe getting out of the traveling and more into production and he had found Wilson Pickett literally singing on his porch and had sort of signed up Wilson Pickett and so Pickett replaced um Joe Stubbs. So now you've got future stack stars, uh, Mac Rice, uh, Mac Rice, Eddie Floyd. You've got the legend that is going to be Wilson Pickett. Uh, you still got Willie Schofield. And I think it's and worth mentioning. Again, Mac Rice wrote Mustang Sally and Respect Yourself. So this is a major songwriter we're talking about. Absolutely. And he had more experience than the others. So he came in with he'd, he'd already done his two years, his national service. Uh, he'd already had a hit record before he went away. Um, so he brought in some experience and maybe a bit more knowledge of country and the blues. So now this band had a real, real breadth of musical knowledge and skill. And I think it's really important to mention, and I know that um, you wanted to talk a lot about this early period, and I, I love talking about the early periods. There was something about the Detroit groups pre-Motown. They all had electric guitarists, you know, the Diablos did, the Midnighters did. So they had this blend of the vocal rhythm and group thing, what to some extent later became known as doo-wop, you know, the the tight harmonies. Uh, Eddie Floyd never made any secret about his love for the ballads and his love for people like the Penguins and the Platters. Um, But you also had in most of these groups a lead guitarist, somebody playing electric guitar, and that gave them an edge. It gave them that real rhythm and blues edge. And the Falcons had that early, and I think it made them uh, uh, a great live band. I think the guy's name was Lance Finney, and it certainly served to give them that kind of edge as well. And I mean, it's not totally unique to Detroit, but I think it is more particular to Detroit than other cities that the best groups, the ones that you can name pre-Motown, all had an electric guitarist in their lineup. Yeah, and absolutely. And I got to throw in the Five Royales, Edward's favorite group. And, um, you know, that was the group that Steve Cropper, who's going to come into this story, was studying at the feet of. He was watching Linus Pauling, the guitar player for the Five Royales, and studying. So when Eddie Floyd hooks up with Steve Cropper, 
they immediately are coming from the same place because they've got that same background. And that is a key distinction. I haven't really seen people break out in writing, but there's a difference between, say, the platters and the the pure vocal group that that leads into Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, this kind of smooth doo-wop direction, and this other section like Nolan Strong and the Diablos and, and especially Hank Ballard and the Midnighters and the Five Royals that clearly goes towards uh, the Stacks iteration of soul. And sadly, we could talk about uh, Eddie and, and Wilson and Detroit for the whole episode easily, but let's keep him moving because we got to get to Stacks. I know. It's a long, long life. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so he, you know, many key events, read the book and find out about that and listen to the that Falcons box set. But let's go to DC where he goes after the Falcons implode cause or explode because they're just one of those acts, I guess, too much talent um, and, and kind of weird. You know, they have hits on two different labels. They, they get on United Artists and then get dropped. But he ends up in DC. Mm-hmm. where he's taken under wing by Bo Diddley, but he meets a young DJ there named Al Bell. Tell us about what happened in D.C. for Eddie Floyd. Sure. His reasoning for moving to D.C. was, I think he he saw and others did, that Motown was going to rule uh, Detroit. And uh, if you weren't Motown, it was maybe going to be a bit harder to get a look in. And I think a lot of these um, artists you know, felt they'd already paid their dues. So best to go somewhere with a little less competition. Eddie didn't like New York. He wasn't looking to move back down south entirely. DC felt like a great, perfect middle ground. And not long after he got there, um, he was friends with a guy, Chester, um, blanking on the last time, might be Chester Johnson. Chester Simmons. Simmons, thank you, from the Moonglows, who said, you know, there's this new DJ in town, Albertus Isbell. You should probably meet him. And he said the same to... And um, just to interject Isabel. about the Moonglows, Harvey Fuqua, the leader of the Moonglows, has just absconded to Chicago and then to Detroit with a young Marvin Gaye. So anyway, there's oh. kind of a talent swap going on. Anyway. Oh, yeah, there's lots of this talent swapping going on. And um, I drove out to Little Rock to interview Al Bell, who is his own legend, and told me at the time he was working on a book, and uh, he really should get his life story out there um out but you know al bell was a force of nature he was um initially going to become a minister he took a degree in political science instead and he became an active civil rights campaigner he actually split from martin luther king because al was a bit more militant he became a dj in memphis where he got himself really well known and headhunted to come up to D.C., where he pushed very hard to keep playing what uh, D.C., the D.C. station called that Bama music, meaning Alabama music. But he stuck by his guns and he was an inveterate entrepreneur as well. And when introduced to Eddie, he realized that Chester had it right, that Eddie was a really hard worker. And I think, you know, what um, so Al was the kind of person who doesn't um, write music much. He's got his name actually on a lot of credits, but he wasn't claiming to be a singer. He wasn't claiming to be a songwriter per se, but he studied music up, down, left and right so that he knew what made hit records. And as a very influential DJ, you know, he broke hit records. So he knew the business. He was ready to set up a new label. He set it up with Eddie and with Chester. And they released a couple of Eddie Floyd singles. They, they grow a guy called Grover Washington, a couple of other people, but uh, they also got the chance to make a demo for Carla Thomas, who was studying at Howard university there at the time. Now, Carla, the daughter of uh, the great Rufus Thomas was already a hit act and one of the only hit acts that Stax had at this point. And Eddie is bowled over by Carla. Recording a demo for her of one of his songs is like a dream come true. I mean, for him, this is bigger than the Falcons and their hit records. They get to make a demo. Al puts in a call to Jim Stewart, who runs Stax. And Jim's like, we like this song. We want to record it. And Al is smart enough to say, well, we should be there. Eddie should be there. He co-wrote the song. They get to go down and record it at Stax. Eddie actually records another solo single at Stax, which was not um, keeping its studios quite to itself at that point. And uh, sure enough, I mean, there's a natural course of events. Basically, Stax is running out of control. It's making lots of regional hit records. Um, Atlantic is uh, distributing these records. And Jim Stewart um, doesn't have the experience and the promo skills to make the most of it. So let's go ahead if I can jump in and, yeah. and hear our next uh, song. And I will play Eddie Floyd's I'll Be Home. This is on Atlantic and recorded in D.C.
Young Eddie Floyd on Lupine Records. I think that was one of Al Bell's companies doing I'll Be Home before he comes to Stax, but this this incredibly important period. And and the, the song I cut to make room was Knock 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 on Wood, which everybody should know. But um, you know, definitely go here, knock on wood if you haven't. My God, that is a great song. So um but then Al Bell gets lured to Memphis, uh, takes a big pay cut to go to Memphis, and he brings Eddie Floyd along. Tell us about that and how Eddie fit into that st- incredible Stax team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a small point, maybe, but Lupine was Robert West's label, and it was oh, the one correct. that the, catch, the, yes. the, the Falcons actually finally hit on with I Found the Love. Um, Al and Eddie had a label called Sapphice, and that would have been the one that I'll Be Home probably came out on, um, if not directly on Atlantic. Basically, Jim Stewart calls Al Bell and says, you know, my label's losing money despite having hit records. I need somebody to come in who knows everybody in the business and can just be on the phone all day selling stacks. We should be selling more records. You know, I need to focus a bit more on the business. I need a, I, you're the, you're the right man for the job. Um, I'll pay you a hundred dollars a week in cash. Jerry Wexler at Atlantic says he'll pay you a hundred dollars a week in cash. Come on back down to Memphis. And Al's like, you have no idea what I'm earning. Do you? <laughs> like, I'm in the mid five figures in DC um, as a prominent DJ, but Al's not a, Al is a very smart guy. And he's like, this is my opportunity, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Jim would have said, even then, look, the, the sky's the limit in terms of what, what you can be at Stacks. And, you know, those two, Jim Stewart, um, a, a white guy, a fiddler, a banker from a different generation, and Al Bell, part of this sort of civil rights generation and a promo guy and um, uh, a, a great man, I should say, as well. They sat on um, opposite sides of a desk and worked the phones together. And there were these great pictures of them. Uh, you know, Memphis is, uh, has an extremely troubled history of racial relations, as we well know. And, you know, Stax was this some, some, something of an island, an oasis in the middle of that. And, you know, Jim... Uh, Jim Stewart deserves a lot of credit for, you know, being willing to take the moves like that. And Al Bell did so much for Stacks. He helped give it much more of a true identity. He could see big picture. He could see sort of package tours. He could see um, it. Funny enough, it was a record that uh, that will. Um, Eddie Floyd very quickly wrote with Steve Cropper, but it was recorded by Wilson Pickett, who was not on Stacks but on Atlantic. But it was recorded at Stacks, and six three four five seven eight nine had a subtitle in parentheses, Soulsville, USA, and that was Al Bell's idea to respond to the Hitsville, USA that we already referenced. Barry Gordy hanging the shingle up at uh, up in Detroit, and it was Al Bell's way of saying, "You know, you got the pop music, you got the hits, we have the soul." You know, we're the we're the authentic label. Uh, so Al had those little moments of genius, and the fact that he even put it out on an Atlantic record. Maybe he just knew that was going to be a bigger record and it has a Motown feel to it. So, uh, yeah, they swiped basically Beachwood four five seven eight nine, turned it into six, three, four, five, seven, yeah. eight, nine. Eddie talks about that. And that was because that the number exchanges had just changed. So I never knew what the whole Beachwood four, five, seven thing meant because by the time I came along, it was all numbers. But before that it was these exchanges and you would say a word, uh, before the last four numbers. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in because it is funny that for Mr. I don't want to be part of Motown and I'm a Stax guy, first thing he does is is this very Motown-influenced, great track. And and just him and Steve Cropper coming together and instantly writing these songs together is um, you know one of the many incredible synergies going on at Stax at the time. Yeah, and I've been fortunate to interview Steve and spend time with him for both the books I wrote uh, about uh, that that period and and that area. But so both Wilson Pickett and Eddie Floyd, and uh, you know, Steve loves working with other people. He's always said, "I don't want to write on my own. There's nobody to bounce ideas off." And he and Eddie just got on very very well, and very quickly hit a formula and started turning out some hit records. And soon enough, they became Eddie Floyd hit records. Eddie did not move to Memphis specifically as a solo artist. Um, but Stax 
was such a family. And I feel comfortable saying that because Eddie says it and he was there till the bitter end. Uh, it was a family and people who were songwriters would get to release records under their own name and people who were artists would get to write for other artists. And to some degree, everybody found their place. I mean, Isaac Hayes found his place down the line, but for many years before he became a superstar, he was a, a songwriting duo with David Porter. And, um, you know, Eddie Floyd went in ostensibly as a part of the family. I think what was appreciated about Eddie was his work ethic and his personality. And Al Bell said he doesn't think Eddie ever realized, but Eddie and Otis had a lot in common, that they were the kind of people who would show up and brighten the place up and they would just want to work. They, they'd be excited. They'd have ideas. And they didn't really mind if they were the ones on the mic or if they got to produce something or write something. They just loved showing up in the morning and being part of this music making process, as I believe everybody did at Stax. But Eddie was welcomed because although Al sort of laid it down as a condition of Al coming back to Memphis, people trusted Al and they quickly said, hey, Eddie's, Eddie's one of us. There's room for plenty more people here. We, you know, this, this label's grown so quickly. We can, we, we've, got, we've got room to share. You know, we can share the, uh, the pie here. And let's jump in and, and hear our last song. And this is Big Bird by Eddie Floyd, co-written with Booker T. Jones. Let's hear it and then we'll talk about uh, that and also some of his other collaborations at Stacks. And that was Eddie Floyd's Big Bird, co-written with Booker T. Jones, right in the aftermath of Otis Redding and the Barquet's tragic death uh, uh, and, and airplane crash. Eddie was literally, I think, trying to fly to the Otis Redding flu funeral when some airplane trouble was preventing that from happening. But And he was praying the Big Bird would stay in the sky. Just an incredible song. And one I never realized until I read this was not a hit at the time. It has become such an epic classic. Um, I know. Isn't record. that isn't that truly fascinating? Eddie had an unbroken run of about 20 R&B hits, except for except for that one. And I guess it's because it was too psychedelic for um, for black radio at, at the time. I mean, it was very early 68. I think it came out and it probably didn't fit in on black radio. And I don't know that Eddie was enough of a star Bless him. <laughs> I don't know. that He was quite enough of a superstar to automatically get play at white radio. I mean, it's quite out there. And yet. It's stood the test of time. And that comes back, you know, it helps speak to Eddie's philosophy, which is, uh, you know, you work hard. Um, something that doesn't take off now might take off down the line. Uh, he's, his philosophy is partly, he was saying, you know, just do your next thing. It, was, it, was it a little bit better than your last thing? Good. So you've done it. Now do it again. Now do it again. Now do it again. I think he understood that history, you know, if you can live long enough, you will see that, Everything you did had its reason, its purpose, and songs that maybe don't get known at the time will have a lasting power. And Big Bird is that is is such a great example of that. It was just, basically it was just ahead of its time. Yeah, and it's also fascinating that Booker T. Jones basically played almost everything but the drums on that record. So you hear it. I think Duck Dunn came in and played the bass line, but um, you hear those guitar parts. And I just imagine Steve Cropper because it sounds so much like Steve Cropper. I mean, Booker T. and Steve were so close that. And Booker T was such a gifted mimic that he could just imitate Steve Cropper. But tell us about the knock on wood synergy, how that came together, how Eddie got the big hit, how he and Steve wrote it together. But so many other people like Isaac Hayes uh, are coming in with major contributions to. Yeah. I, and I, 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 I got to give Eddie credit here. He could just be like, yeah, man, me and me and Steve wrote that song. End of story. Um, Eddie, um, I want to say something in general about about Eddie, because, you, you, you know, at the beginning, you had to sort of say not everybody will know his name. Um, Eddie understands the uh, appeal of the simplicity of a classic song. You know, he starts his songs often from a song title and then 
figures out the mood of the song. So he's a big believer in phrases, you know, so knock on wood is a phrase and um, maybe Big Bird isn't, but I've never found a girl to love me like you do. That's, you know, you get these phrases and then you say, well, that one calls for an upbeat song. That one's calls to be more mellow. Um, he's very much about like a song that's pure and simple and people can understand. And he and Cropper had started writing together. They'd had a hit with six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine for, for Pickett and uh, maybe a couple of others for Sam and Dave and Otis or some, you know, and Carla, some other tracks coming through. They were doing this session over at the Lorraine Motel which is where, unfortunately, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. But it was really the, the um, they called it like the lunchroom for Stacks. It was uh, a, a, an integrated hotel where the, the black artists were welcome, but the whites were also welcome. And they were, they were writing the song, and they decided they wanted to write a song about superstition. I mean, they were literally hidden on a theme. And Cropper tells it like, we'd run through everything, like the black cat walking under a ladder and this and that. And then um, I think he, he his Cropper's version is he turned to Eddie and said, you know, what do people do in, in Montgomery for good luck? And uh, Eddie said, you know, like knock three times on wood. And they're like, well, that's it. And Eddie had previously, you know, growing up in Montgomery, um, like Memphis, get a lot of heavy storms, get a lot of tornadoes. So thunder and lightning is not uncommon. And Eddie and his brother, uh, Joe would typically hide under the bed when these songs came, uh, when these storms came through. So Eddie is suddenly like, oh my gosh, I can now envision this song. Like, Your love is like thunder and lightning. It's frightening. I've got a knock on wood. And they're like, whoa, we've got it. Um, all right, melody. And Cropper's like, man, I'm running out of guitarists here. So he's like, okay, so I had a big hit within the midnight hour. Um, how does those chords go? They go from like 12th fret down to the open fret or 10th fret, sorry, uh, D chord down to the open E. Uh, what does it sound like if I invert that? So he literally inverts it and comes out with a riff for knock on wood. So he literally rips off his own song. And then when they take it into the studio, the idea is initially this would be good for Otis. So let's let's record it. Let's make a demo. Um, Otis was meant to be here today, but he's not. So why don't we just record it anyway? And bit by bit, other people come in and add stuff. So Al Jackson Jr., uh, the, the stellar drummer, um, at Stax, uh, he hits that snare so damn hard for the knock on wood, da, da, da. And Eddie says without that, it wouldn't have been a hit. Isaac Hayes comes in and hears this sort of like break and says, oh, you want piano in there? Let me sit at the piano. Uh, so he adds the piano break. And Eddie says it wouldn't have been a hit without that. And then David Porter, Isaac Hayes' uh, songwriting partner, comes in and joins in the backing vocals and comes out with this high, like, knock that you hear after Eddie says, you know, we got a knock on wood. And you in that gap, you hear David Porter going, knock. And you've also got the brass part in there. And Eddie's like, all of this made it a hit record. And I got to interview David uh, Porter for this book, I interviewed a few other people to help really flesh out the details and tell the story. And David said there were really two sessions he remembers from Stax that had the fam that captured the family feel of Stax. And Knock on Wood was the first of those. Um, for reference, Soulfinger was the second of them. He said that it was like everybody in the studio uh, in, in the Stax family was part of that record. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't it's such a powerful record and Big Bird, I think, recaptures a lot of that power. And one thing that I think has been lost to history, I think people have focused on the influence of Stax on funk to come. But it's also every hard rocker in Britain was listening to Stax obsessively. And when you're hearing Steve Cropper and Al Jackson and Duck Dunn and Booker T just rocking the house, think all these bands, Cream, Led Zeppelin, they are all studying at the feet of the masters here. Direct through line, not just to funk, but also to hard rock. And just an incredible contribution. And, and just to me, also the fate of it, that Otis couldn't be there that day. The team comes together. Eddie steps up. And then Eddie's there to help carry Stacks through this wave of tragedies that hit. Otis dies. The Barquets, his young backing band, almost all wiped out. They go on to reform and, and have a great run. But the the first crew, you know, so many talented kids died. Oh, I've talked about this with Robert Gordon, Jonathan Gold. Just heartbreaking. At the same time, Atlantic sells to the future Warner Brothers and steals, essentially, the Stax Masters. It was all in the contracts, but 
Jim Stewart had never talked about this giving away, signing away his masters with Jerry Wexler, but and Wexler denied it to his dying day. He blamed the lawyers, but you know Wexler knew that was in there, <laughs> and and you know so Stax has to rebuild from scratch. That's when Al Bell really comes into his own. And I've talked again about this with Robert Gordon um, at length, so don't want to get into that here. But Eddie rides it out, and he sticks with Stax. They come through this difficult trough. He's one of the leaders that helps carry him through. Then they explode again in the 70s, with led by Isaac Hayes and the Shaft and, and the Watts Stax Festival. But then in the 70s, Columbia Records uh, signs a deal with Stax, and because Clive Davis paid for his kid's bar mitzvah out of Columbia money, he goes down in flames, takes Stax with him. Then their own bank in Memphis, uh, Union Planner Bank, their personal banker was involved in all these scams, and the FBI and others thought that they had Al Bell as part of that. The guy who actually was the scammer at the bank actually testified and, and cleared Al Bell's name, but Stax was destroyed in the process. An enormous loss to American culture and American business and African-American uh, political power, frankly. Um, but, you know, Eddie rides that out. Tell us about how he landed on his feet after Stax and, and what he did with, with Malico Records down in Mississippi and also how a disco hit kind of carried him through the late 70s and into the 80s. Yeah, there were a few things um, regarding Eddie. One thing I would say about Eddie is he's loyal, um, not to a fault. He's just loyal. And his attitude was Al Bell brought me to Memphis and Stax, and I leave. I don't leave before Al leaves. And um, in the early to mid seventies, as things started to, to 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 go south, I mean, some of it to be to be fair was overreaching on Al Bell's part. I mean, when you're a success, you kind of think, uh, set up another label, another label. We can spend more money, spend more money, and you know, you've got to make sure you put money away for the rainy day when you stop selling records. And and I'm not sure that Al did that. Um, and one by one, the artists start leaving. Even William Bell, who preceded Eddie, you know, their they're best friends are like absolute soul brothers. He even left, you know, a staple singers left. Everybody left. Eddie stayed till the very, very end. He had one of the last releases on Stax. And there's a loyalty to him there that I think actually did sort of help him. Much so you could say, well, Eddie, you know, that's like nobody forced you to stay. Um and maybe it wasn't the best for your career. He was. He, I think it paid off in terms of people know that this is someone they can trust and rely on. And quite a lot of once Stacks finished, quite a lot of the artists sort of looked around and, um, I mean, the artists that were left. But but Malico had gotten going. Um, I believe it was out. Of, am I right? It was out of Jackson, Mississippi. I believe um, so. Yeah. Yeah, good. And that that's not much of a journey. I mean, it's often said, and Robert Gordon would know a lot better than me, that Memphis is more like the capital of Mississippi than, you know, this this you know, uh, capital city, major city in, in, in Tennessee. And it makes sense when you look at the map a bit. So uh, they go down to Jackson. Uh, people are recording. There's no still no shortage of talent around. I think what happened in the mid-70s is for most of the soul singers, and this includes a, a, a few of the Motown people, includes people who are flying independently, maybe artists on Atlantic. It includes Wilson Pickett who would fall into that category. All of a sudden, soul music, they've ridden the early 70s and the smooth soul, the soul train soul, the, the funk that you mentioned, and the more smooth, sophisticated soul. And now things are changing again. And I think almost every last one of them um, fell by the wayside to some extent, except oddly Johnny Taylor, who had the um, massive disco hit. Um, but there are always exceptions that prove rules. And most of the the great 60s soul artists really like struggled. Um, Eddie was saved by a couple of things. One, his reputation in the UK. And you mentioned that rock thing. And it's it's true that Stax had probably because of the, uh, you know, um, not even consciously, but I think because of Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn being of, you know, Caucasian, um, I think there was something going on in certain Stax records that set, said rock music. And then there was something that went on in other Stax records, like Eddie's um, Never Found a Girl or Californian Gold, that just said, you know, beautiful, sophisticated soul music. But Eddie had a following in the UK. So two things happened at the height of the disco boom, when a lot of these artists were trying to make disco records and frankly not making the best of them. Um, uh, Amy Stewart, who has a pedigree, as she's been on Broadway, 
Um, she's a real singer and dancer. She records a sort of Germanic disco version of Knock on Wood, and it goes all the way to number one in the pop charts. And I mean, Eddie's had that song already covered by everybody from Ella Fitzgerald to Willie Bobo to Prince Buster to um, Eric Clapton to David Bowie released it as a single. And um, but it's Amy Stewart who has the number one hit. So a couple of things happen. I mean, he gets um, some more financial security, but he also goes over and in the sort of new wave era, um, when I mentioned the mod revival in the UK that was around 79, 1979 when I was 15, he goes over and rides a lot of that because he can feel that he's appreciated. So he moves over to the UK as well and um, actually puts out a single on um, a mod revivalist band's label, Secret Affairs label. And, um, you know, he spends a lot of time now bouncing around different labels. He records for William Bell's label. Um, he, uh, he ends up on Contempo, which is a label out of maybe Atlanta, but run by a British journalist who had ended up managing the three degrees. So he does, you know, and in some ways, all of these artists after Stax are searching for a home that would feel like Stax. It's hard to find that. I think in that sense, your lightning only strikes once. But Eddie's, Eddie's, um, what we haven't really hit on, and, and, and I've got to take 30 seconds on this, Eddie as a performer, we haven't touched on this. We talked about him as, a, as an artist and a writer. I would recommend to anybody who's like, okay, I, I really don't know enough about this guy. Go watch the film of the Stax Vault review tour of Europe in 1967. The, uh, there's so DVD. Glad you brought that up. Sorry? So glad you brought that up. Yeah. yeah. Key, so key. It's, it is key. That tour was key. It's what cemented their popularity in Europe that already existed. They found that the Europeans... Um, having not come up through like the Jim Crow segregation and the persistent history of slavery and racism, although there's plenty of it in Europe, had an appreciation for black music, a knowledge of their music that the person down the street in Memphis wouldn't have. Um, they they played to adoring audiences in 1967, and Eddie um, basically learned. You know, he he excelled as a performer and there is footage of him doing his song, Raise Your Hand, which Bruce Springsteen subsequently had made his finale for many a year. Uh, he's doing it in Norway, which is where the concert film comes from. There's also a live album from London. Um, but Eddie turns Raise Your Hand, which is all of two and a half minutes on record into something like eight minutes on stage. And he is just like Eddie can bring the crowd. Eddie has one of these voices that when he opens his mouth to sing, you're like, who turned on the amplifiers? Like it's, it's, you know, I've seen it. I've witnessed it. He has a phenomenally powerful voice and he is, he knows how to get a crowd moving. So he is also saved by the fact that everybody loves to see Eddie Floyd perform. I mean, anybody would want him to come on and do two or three songs. So his, the fact that he's an all rounder, he may not be the household name of uh, some of the other soul singers, but he writes songs, he records songs, he's run some business and he is a top class performer. And even the last time I saw him perform, there was no less the case than, than ever. And, and, and it's fitting that he wrapped much of his late career, eighties and nineties touring with the blues brothers, you know, famously Jim, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd of Saturday Night Live had gotten into Stax and Soul, had recruited this band with the help of Paul Schaefer, including Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn. Al Jackson Jr. had been murdered tragically in Memphis in 75, and Booker T. had gone off to California, where he makes uh, one of Willie Nelson's greatest albums of all time, Stardust, in mm -hmm. the late 70s. But, you know, the Stax Brotherhood comes together at the end and has this great multi-decade run victory laps you know for years uh obviously belushi had died john goodman came in and replaced him and and eddie floyd was way better i mean john belushi was an incredible performer but he couldn't sing to save his life and and uh he could sing okay but you know you know what i mean it, it i was, do know i do yeah. know what you mean yeah. yeah and i mean that was actually the last time i saw eddie perform and i'm not sure that he'll be back to new york city it was with um the blues band released an album, I guess it's probably about four years ago now. And they did one show in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, I mean, they were all impressive. But Eddie, the same Eddie, you know, comes out looking like a 22 year old uh, uh, with the body of a 22 year old, if not the hair. Um, 
you know, dressed to the nines and the songs that he sings, his voice is just so powerful. He's stayed with the Blues Brothers band for decades. Um, he was looking for an out. He eventually somebody, you know, they had more than one singer. He was probably the most well known. Um, but he eventually found somebody that he felt could could maybe step into his shoes. Um, but he also toured with Bill Wyman a lot during this period of time as well. Um, Another yeah. Just great, great alliance. And, and Tony, we've got a wrap here, but um, um, my guest has been Tony Fletcher. The book is Knock, Knock, Knock on Wood, My Life and Soul, co-written with Eddie Floyd. Great book, great conversation. Got to get you back on the show. I want to talk to you about New York. I want to talk about Wilson Pickett, R.E.M., uh, Keith Moon, of course. So clear your calendar, Tony. We're going to bring you back. Wonderful. Oh, a pleasure to be on here. Thanks, Nate. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back John Anderson to discuss his biography of Gene Clark of the Birds. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.